As we gather, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We are moving along in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in everybody's favorite chapter this morning on hypocrisy. Something we don't like to think about or consider, but um, Jesus dealt with it, so we have to deal with it. So, as you turn there, um, we are going to read together, I think I had put the whole uh, chapter in the here, but I think we're just going to read down to verse 15, uh, uh, because there's a, a lot of material here. So let's begin by reading, starting in verse 1 of chapter 23, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and said, excuse me, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments They love the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, For one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. We'll stop there. Lord, as we have read and considered these words very briefly, we certainly get the sense of the strong tone of, of rebuke and correction. And so, Lord, as we uh, hear these things this morning and we sort of put ourselves in the shoes of being there listening as you were teaching and as you were bringing uh, correction, uh, Lord, we know it's not something you did with joy. Uh, you did it with a heavy heart. And uh, correction uh, should never be done, Lord, as, as we have you as our witness uh, with any type of joy or, or anything like that, Lord, but with brokenness uh, over the, the state or the condition of someone else. And we know that was your heart as you said these things. So, Lord, as you teach us this morning, may we be open to see what you may have for us as individuals, as a church. And what do you want to speak this morning that we might hear? Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Jesus' last public message. Remember, we are in the short week of Passover. Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday on the donkey. And as he came to present himself as their Messiah, uh, they, of course, Uh, cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, as he came in. They laid down their palm branches and their garments and welcomed him into the the city as their Messiah, but also as their king. They were looking for him to be their political Messiah. They were looking for him to come and to set up the kingdom of God. But of course, Jesus did not come in his first coming to do that. And we know as we've been following this story, since the, the time where he entered the city on the day of the triumphal entry, Back in chapter 21, uh, he's been coming back into the city each day. He's been going out at night to stay with his friends out in Bethany, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and then coming back into the city in the morning. 
and spending his time there in the temple area and interacting. And the, the city of Jerusalem had swelled up to well over two million people because this was one of the major feasts. And so Jesus is here at this feast to present himself as the Lamb of God. And over the course of these three or so days, he is being examined as the Lamb of God, whether they know it or not, by their rituals, by their questioning, by him teaching and them asking him questions and looking at him and criticizing him for what he's saying. So Jesus here in his last public message here in this address to the scribes and the Pharisees uh, is something that we should take note of. In chapter 24 that we'll get into next week, if you just kind of glance over there for a moment, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him. So in chapter 24 and 25, it's something we call the Olivet Discourse. Uh, He's just addressing his disciples and his close-in followers. So that's not a public address, that's an address to his followers. So chapter 23 marks his last public message. Something we should know about Matthew, and we covered this way back at the beginning many months ago, but Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. Matthew also uses the word hypocrite more than any other gospel writer. And that probably is in some respect because Matthew himself, you know, as you go back and look at his name, his name was Levi and Matthew, and that he probably came from the tribe of Levi. He he himself was probably supposed to be a priest, but he ended up somehow in the field of accounting. And as he was there, uh, then he sort of got either got drafted or switched over to the other team there and was uh, taking taxes for this, uh, the, the entity of Rome. Um, we know that Matthew, as he was called to come back and to follow Jesus, he had to leave these things behind. And he probably had a, a sense of guilt about being a Jew, about being someone who knew the law, but yet he himself was not following the law. And so he comes back to Jesus, and I think these words must have hit him like a ton of bricks, literally, as he heard them, because he is the only one who really chronicles this statement of the seven woes and the eight hypocrites, uh, or hypocritical sayings that Jesus uh, speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees. Something that I want to make sure we catch as we begin to go through this this morning is that Jesus feels the same way about hypocrites that you and I do. Hypocrites have never done anything good for the cause of God or for the sake of the church. In fact, as we all know, I've heard it many times, you probably have as well, when you're talking to someone, you're inviting them to church. And what is one of the things they say to you? Well, I'm not going to go because it's just, the church is filled with hypocrites, right? This is what keeps people away from the church. This is what keeps people away from Jesus himself. So as Jesus speaks this morning, here in this chapter, hopefully we will have ears to hear what he is saying to these people, and by extension to us, and hopefully we can make the leap from understanding what he said to them and why he said it to them to ourselves. Now we are not Pharisees in the sense of they were the teachers of Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees were the people, the lawyers, the the, the people who copied the scriptures, the people who had memorized the scriptures. They had made it a ritual of how they conducted themselves when they walked through the town square and how they presented themselves. Everything was, was ritual. Everything was sort of high church, if you will, in the way they conducted themselves. And what they did is they essentially made God inaccessible to the people. They had somehow presented themselves as we're the only ones who can reach God. We are the only people who are truly holy. And if you want to be holy, you have to become like us. And they had, they had set a bar that was so high, that was so unattainable, that Jesus looks at this and he criticizes them this morning uh, in this passage of Scripture as he stood there, no doubt, in the, the temple court area addressing, he had just had this, this interaction. This is what we've been through in chapters 21 and 22. Jesus interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. Now he's addressing the broader crowd, but likely the scribes and the Pharisees themselves are standing there. They're listening. 
as Jesus is addressing the crowd and pointing to them as an example. How would you like to be standing there in a place like that where a public speech is being given, but you're being used as the example? And that's kind of the setting as we enter in this morning to what's happening here. Starting in verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You see, in the synagogues and in the temple, there was a place up front for the teacher or the rabbi to, to come as he uh, was going to be teaching, and he would actually sit down in that seat. And that seat was called the seat of Moshe, the seat of Moses. And so it's a, it's a well-established tradition that when a rabbi taught, they would sit. And so as they sat before the people, they would sit, and the, other pe- the people would sit, and they would, they would speak the oracles of God. They would sometimes read the word of God, but most often they would give their commentary, or if you will, their sermon, from whatever passage of scripture they were speaking on. Something that you might like to know about the Pharisees, because I know you love to study about these guys. According to William Barclay, the Talmud, which was one of the extra-Jewish writings, describes seven different types of Pharisees. Bet you didn't know that. Six of the seven are bad, one is good. Here Here they are. One Pharisee was called the shoulder Pharisee who wore all of his good deeds and righteousness on his shoulders for everyone to see. So imagine someone, in a sense, like a decorated military person with all of their tags and things hanging off, except, of course, in the military, it's a sign of honor. In this case here, the shoulder Pharisee found a way to, to wear all of his good deeds and his righteous acts out on his shoulders for all to see. The second one is called the wait-a-little Pharisee, who always intended to do good deeds, but could always find a reason for doing them later, not now. We would label him the procrastination Pharisee. Number three, the bruised or the bleeding Pharisee. This was a person who was so holy that he would turn his head away from any woman uh, in public and was therefore constantly bumping into things and tripping and thus injuring himself. So he was constantly covered with bumps and bruises and scratches because he was trying to be so holy as to present, prevent himself from sinning. Number four, the hump-backed Pharisee who was so humble that he walked all bent over and barely lifted his feet and he shuffled his feet as he walked. And he wanted people to know that he was humble and he wouldn't look up and he would always hold his head down. <clears throat> the always counting Pharisee, number five, who was always counting up his good deeds and believed that he put God in debt to him for all of the good that he had done. I share the, these with you because I, I think this is kind of where a lot of people are, isn't it? Where they're like, well, you know, how are you going to get into heaven? You know, we might ask someone. And they will say, well, I think my good deeds out, outweigh my bad. I think God will have to let me in because on the whole, I've been a good person. That would be the always counting Pharisee. Number six, the fearful Pharisee, who did good because he was terrified that God would strike him with judgment if he did not do good. So these are people who are are governed by guilt. They are governed by fear. And they look at God as that big old meanie in the sky who's just waiting to smack them because they did something wrong or because they didn't do the right thing at the right time. Such a terrible view of God. Number seven, and the only good one in the list, the God-fearing Pharisee who really loved God and did good deeds to please the God he loved. So why do we share these types of Pharisees? Because This was their environment. This was their mindset. And so all of these classes of Pharisees were mixed in, and you could only tell who they were by watching them. You could sort of guess which which one they were by how they conducted themselves. And Jesus says in verse 3, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, as they sit in the seat of Moses, that observe and do. So whatever they tell you from the word of God, listen to that. 
But do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. In other words, their walk and their talk do not match. They are literally saying to the people, do as I say, not as I do. In the sense of what Jesus is saying to them. One commentator put it this way. He says, let not the law of God lose its authority with you because of these wicked men. And so the plea I would make with you this morning, if you've ever been harmed by someone who was pharisaical or hypocritical in the way that they live their life, I would say to you what Matthew Poole said, let not the law of God lose its authority with you because of these wicked men. Haven't we heard the phrase before, the few ruin, ruin things for the many? It only takes a few. In fact, in our society t- today, aren't we sort of in that place? We have a few bad eggs, so to speak, who do something, and the whole of society, a whole class of people get judged because of the actions of one or two people. Isn't this what's happening today in some measure by critical race theory? Because of what happened in the history of our country. All white people are now put into this class that we now need to make reparations for the horrible things that happened. And the things that happened were absolutely horrible. But is every person who is not a person of color a racist? And yet this is the way that people are treated. And we don't want that to happen with respect to God's word, with respect to the church. That we're all lumped into one category because there are a few who are bigoted. There are a few who are hateful toward uh, people of different classes, such as the gay and lesbian movement. This is part of the reason why they look at the church and say, because of people like the Westboro Baptist Group and others who you know, perpetuate hate, that's why we don't listen to you. That's why we don't think the gospel is real. Because we don't see it in the lives of God's people. And Jesus is going to get down to the heart of the matter this morning as he addresses the issue of it's the heart, it's who you are, it's your character that matters by pointing out that for the scribes and the Pharisees, to them, their character didn't matter. In verse four, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So imagine someone pointing out to you all the things you're doing wrong in life. I mean, that's not fun, right? Here's the list of everything you're doing wrong, and here's all the things that you need to do to live a good, godly, holy, righteous life. That's what these Pharisees considered to be their specialty. They themselves were the examples of how to live a good, godly, holy, righteous life. Now, Peter ended up addressing this later in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, as he addressed the council, and he says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? I mean, Jesus knows this. Who can have the law laid upon them and all the reasons why you're doing wrong things? Who can have that that heavy burden laid upon you and survive. And Jesus points out here in verse four, they, they lay the heavy burdens upon the people, but they will not move them with one of their fingers. So they just come in, drop a bomb on you and walk out. Verse five, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. What does this mean? The phylacteries were small leather boxes that they made to tie to their foreheads and their hands. And they placed four scriptures in these little boxes, wrote them on little pieces of paper and rolled them up. They had two scriptures from Exodus and two scriptures from Deuteronomy. And some of those scriptures were as follows. In Deuteronomy chapter six, we find these words. And these words which I command you today, this is uh, Moses speaking, of course, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Here it is. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, they took that so literally, they said, we have to, to write them down and put them on the front lid of our head and put them on our hands. And so they would tie these little leather boxes to the back of their hand, their wrist or their forearm and to the front of their head. And notice what Jesus said here. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So they began to take this as a little competition. They're walking down the street. They see, you know, Rabbi Fred over here and he's got a phylactery on his head. And he's like, well, his is this big. I'm going to make mine that big. And so he would go home and make a bigger box to put his tiny little scriptures in. And there was this thing that happened and that was supposed to communicate to the people that they were incredibly spiritual and that they were so holy. And it says that they enlarged the borders of their garments. It says in the book of uh, Numbers that they, uh, chapter 15, verse 38, that they were to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners of their garment. And so then they began to, to take that and, and to pervert that and to, to put more tassels on their garment and to make the, the hem of their garment larger. And, and the person who had uh, more, more tassels and uh, a broader hem and more blue threads, they, they were more holy. And Jesus is pointing this out saying, they love for you to recognize them. So one of the things, if we wanted to, to, to break it down and say, what do we learn from this? from these people who are Pharisees there in Jesus's day, but also in our day as we look out across the landscape of Christianity, is people who try to draw attention to themselves. You see, our ministry as Christians is to make the name of Jesus great. We are here to point people to him. I mean, who am I? I'm just a disciple, I'm just a follower of Jesus, but I want my life and everything I do to point to him. I want to be a lighthouse, shining a light on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not here to shine the light on myself. And, you know, I say all the time to, uh, to Pastor Mitch, as well as to our elders, you know, hey man, if I get hit by a bus, this thing keeps going. Why? Because it's not about me. I'm just, I'm just a person, I'm just a pastor. God will bring someone else to continue the work of the ministry that he has called. It's not about the person. It's about, uh, meaning the person doing the ministry, it's about the person of Jesus Christ. We are here to bring glory to God. We want our worship to shine the light on heaven. We pray every Sunday as we come to a time of worship that we want to literally enter the throne room of God and to be at his footstool worshiping him. We are not here for a concert. We are not here to be entertained. We are here to worship the one true and living God. And Jesus is looking at these people, these, these men who have now created, took, taken a system that God had created to, to draw men to himself and they have perverted it so that they are now drawing men to themselves rather than to God. And so they lay burdens on people and they won't remove them. Uh, they make these phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments so that people will look at them and think, wow, they're great, they're awesome, they're holy. Verse six, they love the best place at feast, at places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue. You know, if you're going to a concert, what you do is normally, when, when I've done this, you're looking at the seating chart and you're finding, I've had this much money to spend. How close can I get to the stage and where are the best seats in the house? But in the case of social gatherings or spiritual gatherings, these are the people who would have in their churches today, uh, if you give a donation today of $1,000, we'll put your name on that seat or on that pew and you can have a seat right up front. You can be special. They love the best place at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. They're going to get there two hours early before service so they can save their seat. And they love the greetings in the marketplaces and they love to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. The word rabbi literally means my great one. It was a title of distinction. 
He says, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. I grew up uh, in North Carolina, and I grew up in the Southern Baptist church system. And I'm not criticizing them by saying the things I'm about to say. But one of the things I never understood as a child, and especially as I moved into adulthood through the teenage years, is why every pastor of a church was doctor, or why he was reverend doctor, or the doctor reverend. And these titles were well established, even to the very day. Uh, the church where uh, my parents attended for many years before they passed away is you know, pastored by a man who holds the title doctor, and he prefers to be called Dr. So-and-so. That's how he prefers to be addressed. I say this to say that. That sort of falls into this category here of what Jesus is saying. Now, just to be clear, I don't care what you call me. <laughs> uh, just don't call me late for dinner, haha. But, you know, I'm a servant like you. Pastors and ministers, we're here to serve God by serving the people of God. We are here, as Jesus said, he's going to get to it in a few minutes, to take the lower seat. We are here to, as it were, to be the janitor of the church in the sense of we are here to serve, to take the lowest place, to take the place of no recognition. But what happens is these things get turned around in our flesh. And we want people to praise us and to, hey man, I worked hard, I studied hard, I got that title, I want you to call me by that title. Listen, I'm not doing my job. If you're, if you're looking at me, wrong. Look at Jesus. I will fail you. A, a, a human being will always fail you and disappoint you, but Jesus never will. Do not be called a rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. We look to Jesus. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. He's saying here, don't use father with reference to spiritual things. I mean, I just mentioned the Baptist church, of course, in the Catholic church, everyone's called father. We look to God, he's our father. We look to Jesus, he's our teacher. Now Paul said something interesting a little later in, in 1 Corinthians chapter four, that's, which is not what Jesus is talking about here, which is why I bring it up. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter four, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. What's he talking about there? God used me to bring the gospel to you and he's speaking of his fondness for them in the gospel that I'm sort of your spiritual father and that God used me to bring the gospel to you. But Paul was not standing in the place of or demanding that they call him father or that they, they call him by a title. In fact, Paul, the apostle before he was saved was known as Saul of Tarsus, may have likely been there when Jesus said these things. We know he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was there in Jerusalem during these days. He may have been a part of this. We don't know. He, he could have heard what Jesus said. And in verse 10, he says, And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. It's interesting how other translations have rendered verse 10. The King James says, Neither be ye called masters. The ESV says instructors, and the NASB says leaders. And so they all kind of get to the, the heart of the matter, whether it's teachers or masters or instructors or leaders. He's saying, hey, look to God. Don't look to men. Again, Paul said, in, in looking at people uh, in the church, First Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. What's he talking about here versus what Jesus is talking about? Je Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, is talking about people who are usurping authority and who are, if you will, involved in what would be called spiritual abuse. They are exercising authority over you and demanding 
that you follow their example and that you obey them and they have an unwelcomed reach into your life. Paul is talking here about people who serve the Lord and who God has placed in a position, pastor, poiman means shepherd, in a position to, to shepherd the flock of God, to serve you. And they love you and the things they do, they, they do to serve God and they do to love you, but they are not to be in the place of exalting themselves or exerting undue authority over you. He says, esteem them very highly in love for the sake of their work. Paul said to, uh, to the Philippian church in chapter two regarding his friend and his servant Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus had become ill and he was a, a staunch, loyal, devoted person to Paul. And he had became ill and he was sort of the courier running the letters back and forth from Paul in prison in Rome and to the various churches that Paul was writing to. And he talked about how Epaphroditus had become so ill that he almost died. He says um, in Philippians 2.29, as he sends Epaphroditus back to them with a letter, the letter to the Philippians, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life. So there's a difference here between having people that we say, wow, I I admire how they serve the Lord like our missionaries, I love having them come home and spending time with them because it sort of reminds me that these are people who have, have just, they've, they've left everything literally to follow Christ. And they're an inspiration and they're an encouragement to us. But Jesus here is talking about these people who have taken the position of God. They've taken Moses' seat. And they are the ones exerting authority over you. And he says here in verse 11, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, we know as we've been going through this study, Jesus has said this a number of times. In fact, on the night of the Passover meal, in John chapter 13, there at the Passover supper, remember Jesus got up from the table and he went over and he took his outer garment off and he put on a towel. He girded himself with a towel and he got a basin of water and he went around and he washed each, the feet of each of the disciples. And when he finished doing that, he sat down and he looked at them and he said, do you know what I've done to you? As I have done to you, as I have served you, so you're to serve one another. And this is to become the genesis of the church. The church is built on humility and service, which is the opposite of what Jesus is addressing with the scribes and the Pharisees here in the courtyard of the temple. In verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And Jesus is putting them on notice on that day that if you want to live in this way and you want to exalt yourself and you want people to address you in these ways and to treat you with this kind of treatment, then you will be humbled. And he says, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. James speaks of this. Peter speaks of this. I could have put all, pulled all those verses out and, and quoted them here today. But we know these things, do we not, as believers in Christ? The greatest person in the midst of any group of people is the person who is the servant. And this is something that we need to have trained out of us And the only way that's going to happen, we'll get to this a little bit later, is by spending time alone with God and his word, asking him to examine us and to make us into the image of his son, son, Jesus Christ, to be a servant like Jesus. In in so many places, uh, I I looked up some of them. I, I just pulled out a few here from the book of Matthew. We're going to get into this a little bit more next week in in chapter 24 and in 25. Jesus said, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Matthew 23, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Matthew 24, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Again, later in Matthew 24, blessed is that servant whom his master, 
when he comes, will find so doing. You know, we need to become servants, all of us. That's independent of personality, whether you're type A, B, C, or whatever classification you are. It's about heart, not about personality. We should all be willing to serve people. Albert Einstein said this, Try not to become a man of success, but rather to become a man of value. And I share that in this context. How do we become a person of value? By becoming a servant. In verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Wow. You've set yourself at the gate to the kingdom of heaven. You won't go in, but you're also not letting anybody else in, and you just want people to follow you. That's crazy. In Malachi chapter 2, we're told that the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from the mouth of the priest for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So whether we're talking priest in the Old Testament or pastor in the New Testament, what should be coming from our mouths is not platitudes and here's the seven principles to living a dynamically successful life, but what are the words of life from the word of God? We are here to show people the way to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 18, which we studied a few weeks back, speaking of little children, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That simplicity, that purity of heart. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And then whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus said here in verse 13, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. What a a terrible thing to think that someone wants to lead someone to the gate of heaven and then stop there and not come in. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite means pretender, right? If you've ever seen, you know, gone to a show at a theater, often when you go in, there's that Greek symbol of the two masks. There's one of a mask that's smiling and happy, and there's one of a mask or a face that's frowning. Hypocrite means pretender, it means actor. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. In other words, there were some Pharisees who were fleecing widows. The equivalent of that today would be, let's just go there, the televangelists who are on TV, you know, appealing to, to people who were at home, you know, shut-ins, people who, who have no means of getting out and going to church. So their church is on TV and that's all they can do. Think about people in nursing homes who can't get out and go anywhere. And they're watching these people plead for money. And I know you're probably just on social security, but God's gonna take care of you. Send your next social security check. Send the whole thing to us because we need your money to continue this ministry or this channel is gonna go off the air if you don't send your money in. And they do these things. And here, even in the Old Testament, here in the New Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees were doing these things. And part of the way they did it was by praying these long prayers and appearing spiritual. And their false spirituality became a platform for them to demand money from people. This is a horrible thing to rob the people of God. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. A proselyte means a convert to a cause. And the Jews would would travel looking for Gentiles whom they could convert to Judaism. And if they could get them to convert, and to be circumcised, 
and to come in and take a vow and renounce everything from their Gentile ways and adopt the Hebrew or the Jewish way of life and only eat kosher from that day forward and all of those things. They considered it a success, but you see, they hadn't won them to God. They won them to their way of life. Thus, when Jesus says you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves, Jesus is saying to them, you guys are headed to hell. The word he uses for hell here is the worst word. It's the word Gehenna. It's the place of eternal torment. And he says, you are leading people to where you're going, not to heaven, but to hell. Under the pretense of we are spiritual, religious people. One person said their business was not to turn men from sin unto God, but merely to convert them to an opinion. We see this today in the church. We've had people come through here trying to convert us to Reformed theology, you know, to a particular way of looking at things. Or to their point of view on any given thing. We had a guy come through here a while back, a who was vehemently debating with us about baptism. That baptism is essential for salvation, meaning if you're not baptized, you're not saved. And, you know, people have their things that they get stuck on. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides. Now, this was a a slap in the face because they thought they were woke or illuminated. Who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. So he looks at this this situation where someone comes in and they, they give to the temple and you can see into the temple, you can see on the altar or you can see in the temple coffers that someone has given And he he says, I'm going to make an oath. And in taking this oath, I'm going to convince you that here's uh, how you know that I'm going to keep my oath, that I'm really sincere and I'm really truthful in the way that I'm presenting myself. And so the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to swear by the gold of the temple. Not by the temple itself. The temple is just a building. But the gold of the temple, no, that's something tangible. And so Jesus looks at that and he says, fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? You know, our offerings are given to the Lord. Now, who dwells in the temple? It's to be a place where God himself dwells. And yet you're saying the temple itself doesn't sanctify the gold, but it's, it's the altar. So, so when I, I swear, I'm going to swear by the altar. Now we do these things in, in today in our world, don't we? In our court systems, I don't know if they still do this. Uh, when you go up to take the witness stand, you're supposed to put your hand on the, the Bible, the word of God, and to say, I swear to, t- swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Or, you know, if you're really trying to convince someone that you're sincere in what you're doing, you say, man, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Ever heard that one? Ever heard the phrase, I swear on my mother's grave. This is true. I've heard these things. As if it's not true if I say it just normally. It's only true if I say it and then follow it up with one of those things to convince you that I'm, I'm real, that I'm sincere. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. You've made these distinctions. You're you're looking at the things around the temple. You're looking at the things around how God has has desired and designed that we come to him in in worship and in sacrifice and we humble ourselves before him. And yet you've you've made these divisions. The the temple's not holy, but the altar's holy. You know, the gold's holy. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar and swears by it and by all things on it, he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, by God himself. Are you you saying, Mr. Pharisee, 
that you're ignoring the fact that God himself dwells in the temple? You're saying, well, he doesn't count, but the altar counts? And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it? They worked out a religious system that permitted them to rob God and others but still maintain their reputation. You see, they, they had so departed from the Lord that they were blind to the fact that God didn't accept a single thing that they did. All these little sayings here that Jesus went through, one commentator pointed this out. He, he's saying this was a way of making a promise while keeping your fingers crossed behind your back. Remember that from childhood? Well, well, I swear I'll do it, but your fingers are crossed behind your back. They have these clauses, these out clauses. Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In other words, just be a person of integrity. Mean what you say and say what you mean. James quoted this later in James chapter five, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. That's what's happened here in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, verse 23. For you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law which are justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Their tithing was meticulously noteworthy, but hypocritical because it served to soothe the guilt of their neglect of the weightier matters of the law. Listen to this. It is both possible and common to be distracted with relatively trivial matters while a lost world perishes. These scribes and Pharisees, these hypocrites, were so concerned about keeping up appearances and maintaining their religious system and keeping the traditions that they were ignoring the people. They ignored the very people that God cared about. Blind guides, verse 24, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. He's not just saying this metaphorically. They had a practice that if you were at a dinner party and someone was serving you wine, they would whip out a little piece of cloth akin to what we would consider cheesecloth, if you know what that is, put it over their glass, and then as they poured the wine in, just in case a gnat or a bug got in the wine, it would get strained out. But also as they walk down the street, now you've probably all had the unpleasant experiences I have, uh, you know, a bug flies in your mouth. Now, those of you who ride motorcycles know you never ride a motorcycle with your mouth open. But imagine you're walking down the street, a bug flies into your mouth. In their situation, they don't know where that bug has been. That bug might have been on a Gentile. It might have bit a Gentile on the the blood and the bug is now contaminated. It flew in my mouth. And so you would see, it was a common practice documented, a Pharisee walking down the street and all of a sudden going, <coughs> coughing and sticking their finger down their throat to cause themselves to throw up to get rid of the gnat. That's what it means when it says straining at a gnat. He says, but you swallow a camel. The camel was an unclean animal, but hey, you don't have any problem with camels, but you have a problem with gnats. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. How many of you ladies, after a meal, are only going to wash the outside of the glass or the backside of the plate? Does that make any sense whatsoever? But Jesus is saying that's how you are living your life. Outside you look great. You've got it together you love God, you go to church on Sundays, everything's good. But inside, you're filled with hate 
You're filled with lust. But, but between Sundays, if you will, there's no thought of God. And that's what he's saying of these Pharisees. But inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first change the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness, especially during the times of the feasts. As people were approaching Jerusalem, there would be tombs, of course, out in the wilderness and on the paths. And so what they would do would be to whitewash those tombs, to paint them bright white, so that people would more easily recognize them and not accidentally brush up against them and potentially become contaminated or ceremonially unclean because they touched the rock that was the doorway to the tomb that contained dead men's bones. You can see how extreme their practices were. And he says, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're like those whitewashed tombs. And even so, outwardly, you appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, it would be easy for us as we go through this to be sitting here going, boy, it would be interesting to be in the crowd watching Jesus interact with those Pharisees. And remember earlier, Jesus had seen a Pharisee in the temple and he pointed this out to his disciples. And that that Pharisee was standing there and as he was sort of relating to God, he did so publicly and he stood there, you know, proclaiming out uh, to God, but in front of everybody saying, you know, God, thank you that I'm not like these people. I'm not a criminal. I'm not a Gentile. I'm not a woman. All the things that he was happy that he wasn't. Because in his mind, all of those things were things that were unpleasing to God. And then Jesus pointed out the other man who was over in the corner by himself and he was just over there kind of quietly beating his chest going, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's the contrast between those who want to appear outwardly righteous and who do their deeds so that they're seen before others. But what is going on inside? Are you full of hypocrisy and lawlessness? Or is your character and reputation of such that you're not in the place of the Pharisee, but you're in the place of the person who loves God. One commentator said this, and it struck me. We express the same thought when we think, I wouldn't have denied Jesus like the other disciples did. You see, if we're honest, there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us, isn't there? We like to find fault. We point out why people aren't complying with the rules. Blessed are the pure in heart is what Jesus said. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. D.L. Moody used to say, If I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. The Pharisees wanted to do these outward things to convince others of their reputation. But you see, Jesus is concerned about the heart and what we're truly like on the inside because God looks past all that. You know, there's that verse where Samuel was looking for the next king and he came to the house of Jesse and he was going through his sons And the Spirit of God spoke to him, and he says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 29, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And we say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus was telling them very clearly. They weren't saved. They didn't know God. They had a dead religion. 
Therefore, indeed, verse 34, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Now listen, up to this point in time, Jesus has been speaking to them as the master, the rabbi, the teacher, the Messiah. But he's been speaking them to them from God's word, from God's authority. Now he says in verse 34, listen, he's addressing them and he says, therefore indeed I send you prophets. He's now speaking as God himself. He switched up to this point in time, he did not say I, now he's saying I. I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus is laying something really heavy on them, both in the Old Testament as the prophets came and as they were persecuted, they weren't received by the people. And I believe Jesus is now looking forward Prophetically, what's about to happen on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and as the apostles and the prophets and the pastor teachers, they're raised up and they're appointed by the Holy Spirit to serve the church and to serve this outpouring of the Spirit and this new wine that Jesus is bringing, that they will do the same thing to them that they did to the Old Testament prophets. And when he refers in verse 35 to Uh, the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the, the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, here's what you need to know. Here's what's hidden in that verse. Abel in Genesis chapter four, we know, was murdered by his brother Cain. And it was because the sacrifice, the offering that Abel gave to God was received by God and it was viewed by God as more righteous than what Cain had brought. When he refers to Zechariah, He's referring to the Zechariah who's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20. And in case you don't know this, in our, in our English Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, but in the Hebrew Bible, the last book of the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles. So Jesus is saying here, from Genesis, the beginning of the Old Testament, to the end of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, all you have done is murdered those who were righteous. Wow. And he said the last one, you even did it between the temple and the altar. Abel was killed, well really, in the garden of God, right? By his brother, the place that God had created for man to dwell in his presence. And here, uh, Zechariah killed in the temple between the altar and, and the temple. One can almost feel the withering force of his strong and mighty indignation, indignation directed not against the people, but against their false guides. And yet behind it all is his heart. And the woes merge into a wall of agony, the cry of a mother over her lost child. You see, Jesus is not saying this, I think, with anger and venom. I think he's speaking these things with a broken heart because so many people have been led astray. Yes, he's upset at how the Pharisees have led astray the people. And this should explain to us as we read elsewhere in the scriptures how God hates false teachers and he hates false prophets. They're here today, aren't they? They're all over our society. The NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, is a purveyor of these things. I could list names of churches. We don't have time today because the list is too long. But there's plenty of them out there who have people saying that they are here today receiving fresh revelation from God on the par of Scripture. And when their prophets today speak or their bishops or their apostles, whatever their name is, and they go by these names, they're doing all the things we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 23. And they're traveling around proclaiming that God has spoken to us. And on the level of scripture, what you have to receive what I'm saying as the same as or higher than the scriptures. And then they call you to follow them into their madness. False prophets, false teachers. 
So this raises the question to me, and I realize we're, we're at time here. How does God speak to us? How do we hear his voice? And we'll finish with this this morning. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him before whom we must give an account. See, the word of God, this is how we hear the voice of God. This has been recorded for us. Some have often said, and I agree with them, this is God's love letter to us. What you hold in your hands is God's word to you. And let me encourage you this morning to read it. You may remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel had been dedicated to the Lord. He's there in the temple. His mother has left him now. Samuel, the, the prophet or the priest, is raising this, uh, uh, Eli, excuse me, is raising this young boy, Samuel. <clears throat> and there in 1 Samuel chapter 3, you may remember the story Samuel's in bed, Eli's in bed, they're in their separate rooms in the back of the temple. And uh, he, he begins to hear this voice calling his name at night. And he goes and he thinks it's his, his master, Eli, and he goes and he says, you called me. He says, I didn't. And this happens three times. And then Eli says, well, I think it's the Lord speaking to you. So the next time you hear his voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So in 1 Samuel 3, 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and he said, here I am, you called me. He said, I didn't. So he said, say this to the Lord. Now in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 3, now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel answered, Speak for your servant hears. You see, this must be our heart attitude. I want you to know something this morning. God wants to speak to you. You know, and we, we gather once a week for an hour to worship the Lord and to come together and praise God for that. And we need to do that. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's important that we do that. This is where we get the teaching of the word of God, the encouragement and the fellowship all of the things that we need. But we also need to have daily manna from the Lord on our own, you and your Bible and the Lord. Letting him speak to you. See, if we are not listening as Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. If we are not consistently spending time in his word, then we're not listening. In effect, we're saying, God, I don't believe you're going to speak to me. I don't believe you can. I don't believe you will. And I want you to hear his voice. So we'll get to the lament over Jerusalem next week. But this morning, let's leave with this. Hopefully, we are not like the Pharisees. Hopefully, we're not in the place this morning where we are giving an excuse to God that the reason I'm not here or I'm not drawing near to you is because of those other hypocrites who have been a bad example. When we stand before the throne of God, Jesus will not accept the answer because the, the, the hypocrite kept me away. As horrible as that is, and I realize it's very, very true in the sense of a lot of people just are very hurt by that. He's going to say, what did you do with me? It's the person of Jesus. And so let us be careful whom we're representing and how we're representing the Lord. Because I don't want people to look at me and say, the reason I, I'm not a Christian, the reason I'm not following Jesus is because that guy was a bad example. That God would help us, that we would not be people who need to hear the same words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, spoken to us. Instead, may we hear the words enter 
and to the joy of your master. So let's serve the Lord. Let's love the Lord. Let's seek the Lord. Let the, the warnings to the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites be just that. Let them be warnings that we are staying far away from. And let us draw near to him because James says if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Amen. Lord, we love you this morning. We bless you. If there be any here this morning, Lord, who have uh, been hurt by pharisaical or hypocritical kinds of things, we pray that this morning you would just sort of bring restoration and healing from all of that. And Lord, if we have been pharisaical or hypocritical in our lives at any point in the past or even maybe right now, Lord, this morning we repent from that, we walk away from it, we turn back to you. We say, God, help us, be gracious to us, be merciful. Lord, show me how every day I can just open your word and listen to you. Lord, give me that hard attitude of speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more. We draw near to you this morning. We want to be even closer to you. Lord, may we walk hearing only your voice and not the chatter of the world and the madness of everything that's going on out there. But may we keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus and listen to him, our teacher, our guide. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen.